calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shift No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, in which Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira of PS Literary read and critique your query letters and opening pages, after which we'll go to today's guest. All right, let's dive into today's query letters. Dear Cecilia Lira, my name is Elaine van der Geld and I'm seeking representation for my upmarket debut, Nothing is Forgiven, complete at 77,000 words. I chose to query you specifically because you are seeking novels that center around dysfunctional families and moral dilemmas, and I thought my novel might be a good fit for your list. When Astrid's dying father, a convicted pedophile, returns home for palliative care, Astrid struggles to reconcile his crimes with her desire to see him as a kind, loving parent. But when the 14-year-old neighbor starts coming around the house, Astrid must protect her. As she searches for evidence of wrongdoing, Astrid is forced to confront her own cover-up of the abuse her father perpetrated on her best friend Tate when the girls were still adolescents. A braided narrative, Nothing is Forgiven, also tells Tate's story. In 1989, Tate's mom has fallen into a depression and rarely comes out of her bedroom. When Tate starts middle school, her cool English teacher invites her to join a lunchtime book club. Seeking attention and approval, she quickly comes to depend on the time spent in his classroom, even as she crosses more and more boundaries. In its exploration of the limits of familial love and the complicated fallout of sexual abuse, secrecy, suspicion, fear and the consuming power of denial, Nothing is Forgiven is a voice-driven debut that will appeal to readers of Kate Elizabeth Russell's My Dark Vanessa, Zoe Whittle's The Best Kind of People and Daisy Johnson's Sisters. An excerpt from this novel was previously published as a short story in Kenyan Review Online. My short stories, essays and poems are regularly published in online and print magazines, including the Michigan Quarterly Review, The Normal School, Grain, CV2, Hypercampus and Verse Daily. Recently, one of my personal narratives was named a notable essay by Best American Essays 2020. I hold an MA in English Literature and am currently an MFA candidate in Creative Writing at the University of British Columbia. I've attached the first five pages and would be happy to send along the complete manuscript if you're interested. Thank you so much for your kind consideration. I hope to hear from you soon. Kind regards, Elaine van der Geld. Carly, would you like to begin with Elaine's query? So we had this 
Very interesting query. Um, and I'm going to first just kind of go through like the tactical query points in terms of, you know, the details. And then I'm going to talk about the actual book itself. So um, one thing I like to tell everybody just as like a fun note is like, fun. <laughs> I find queries fun. As a little note is um, when you're talking about your word count, I suggest you round it. So this person has like 76,409 words. I just find that like a little bit of a stumbling when I'm reading. So really, it doesn't really matter what the final like few numbers are, especially if you're going to kind of like tweak in between. Um, so I would say just call it like 76,000, honestly, just to make it really easy. Uh, when I read the query, I just rounded up to 77,000 because I was just like, I'm tripping over all of these numbers. So yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so yeah, I always, yeah, round up, down a little bit. doesn't matter, especially because that also gives you a little tweak room, right? Like if you send her this query and then you want to change a couple things before you get your request. So other than that, I, I found this very intense, very, very good in terms of the, the stakes and everything like that. So as you guys know, Astrid has a dying father. He's also a convicted pedophile. And so we're just kind of going through some very high stakes, you know, family drama, which um, is always very interesting. And, and this query was addressed to CC because CC loves the the dysfunctional families and so do I. So so yeah, I thought all of that was very interesting. The one thing I wasn't sure about at the query stage here was we're in Astrid's point of view and then we're also in Tate's point of view. And it's not until the second paragraph or the, the third paragraph that it says a braided narrative. And I kind of just would have rather at the beginning just call it like a dual POV novel and just kind of like frame it because I just, you know, this was just more confusing to say, oh, this is Astrid's book. Oh no, it's Tate's book. And it just almost that way seems more of an afterthought. So I would just call it like a dual POV book but again it's also not really clear on how these stories come together and whenever we're talking about a dual pov book you know i kind of want to know how these stories are coming together i get the sense obviously that something happened to tate and obviously astrid's family is involved but yeah i think that the way that the query was written it made these two stories seem separate even though we, we kind of know that they that they might be together but the columns were really great my dark vanessa is a is a Excellent, excellent book. Very dark. So, you know, if you've read that and you get that comp, you kind of know probably how dark this project is going to be. And uh, Zoe Whittle's book, Best Kind of People. Again, so we're, those are really great comps. I didn't, I haven't read this, the Daisy Johnson sisters book. I don't know that book, but the other two I thought were great comps. I thought the bio was great in terms of, you know, mention the the short stories and essays and poems and magazines. So yeah, it, it's clear that we're working with a professional writer. So I would just find a way to kind of massage that query to kind of explain why it's a dual PO. Awesome. Cece, have you got anything to add to that? I really enjoyed this query letter. I would suggest moving the comps up to the first paragraph. And I would say that in the third paragraph, the line that begins with in 1989, all the way up to the sentence that finishes with power of denial, that's reading a little bit more like a synopsis. So, I mean, I feel like if you follow Carly's advice, you'll hit the nail on the head and you'll get it right because it's about saying it's dual POV right from the beginning and then showing how these two stories are braided, which is always very interesting. And then I would just condense that paragraph too. I, I love the comps. I love Zoe Whittle. I wish I could live inside her brain. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, she she obviously has really great writing credentials. Um, the fact that one of her personal narratives was named a notable essay really stood out to me. And I, I thought it was a great query letter. Yeah. If I if I had to give notes, just condense that paragraph. That would be my one big note. Wonderful. So all around great feedback there, Elaine. Carly, what would you like to say about the opening pages? So right away, I got the sense that, you know, this is a, a more literary project. So, you know, we're talking not kind of spelling things out for the reader. So one of the things that I had here as a note was, 
was on the first page, you know, figuring out the relationship of the mother to the children. And I, I kind of, once the paragraph or once the page was kind of over, I got the sense that the author was trying to show that the children have to mother the mother, you know what I mean? Like the mother is actually the child and how that kind of the roles are reversed in, in that relationship. So, you know, I was a little bit confused until I kind of figured out what the author was trying to do. So this could be an example of maybe this project's too literary for me, but I would just have, you know, maybe like to not have been kind of pulled out of the of the book to kind of figure out and you know, what is the relationship here? Other than that, I really liked the kind of throwback vibe to like a girl getting on her bike, going to the corner store, getting her snacks, going out to the woods. Like you sold me on all that. I love that. Uh, I love that girl returns to nature thing. So, but there wasn't really anything in that section that was dramatic or gripping in a way that felt like some plot was happening. It just felt like, okay, we just kind of showed a little snippet of what was going on with this character's life, but it wasn't actually any sort of dramatic moment. So I think I would have liked just something to happen in that section. When we move to the kind of more present day, uh, it was 2018, uh, is the present day Astrid character. Uh, and we talk, we, we, we get a little glimpse into the dad coming home. So like out of these two stories, to me, the one that seems more interesting is the dad coming home from jail, not the retro, just kind of setting the scene in 1989. So I would flip these two point of views. That would be like my first take um, because right now Astrid is seeming more interesting than Tate. And we need to make sure that both of these are equally interesting and the reader wants to get back to the next point of view that like, that's what propels a dual POV novel. Awesome. What do you think, Cece? I 100% agree. Yeah. Please flip these point of views unless there's a reason. I mean, we, all, we only get five pages, but first of all, because Astrid's dad arriving is more interesting in terms of like how to begin a novel. I also would say that I thought based on the query letter that Astrid was the main character within the main characters. All stories have one principal main character, let's call it that, even when you have more than one point of view. And typically you have to begin with the most important one. There are exceptions. Sometimes for some reason you need someone else's point of view to show that something happened, but but it needs to be intentional. So what I would ask this author if I were talking to her is, is this intentional? Do you have to start with Tate or do you think you can make it work with Astrid? Because if you could, I agree with Carly's advice. I absolutely think you should. You know, it's a very, I have embarrassingly little to say about these pages because they were just so, so good. I will say that I think you should avoid using verbs that are primarily used as nouns in the first sentences, because it typically makes the reader have to read the same sentence many times before, because when we read a word like umbrella, we're expecting a noun and you're using it as a verb, which is fine. But I had to go like, wait, what? Hold on. There's an umbrella. No. Okay. If, if obviously it may just be my brain. Could you just read that sentence for our listeners who haven't, who haven't got access to the first pages just so that they can understand? Yeah, so the sentence says blonde hair umbrellas from her skinny shoulders and Tate can already see their bodies pressed together on the narrow bench of the roller coaster can already Already hear her mother shouting, arms up on the steep drops, smell the frying funnel cake, feel the jerk of the bumper cars. Please notice this is a very long sentence. It's the second sentence in, in the story. And it starts with a, a verb that uh, is typically used as a noun, umbrellas. So I, I would not recommend that in the beginning. It's okay to do it later, but not in the beginning. Just, just my, my, my taste. And then I would say that in the dialogue, insert emotion. I like that you're not explaining. I like the depiction of the parentified children. It's very effective. But when her mom walks into the room and is acting, which I mean, I interpreted this as being 
she's probably bipolar and she's having a manic high, I would suggest that Tate's reaction when she pulls the blanket to her chin and when Tate's sister Caroline appears in the doorway and says, come on, mom, you're just excited. That's all. I would suggest inserting some a sense of emotion in, in those lines. How often does her mom do things like this, right? Like, and how often she does this will reflect on her emotional response. So for example, a child who is used to seeing a manic mother walking into her bedroom in the middle of the night will be annoyed, will be worried about missing Wonderland on the next day. But a child who is not used to it, if this is the first time, will be terrified and confused. So they're both super valid emotions, but one speaks to how often this happens. And that's a way of explaining that to the reader without explaining it. So I would add, I would weave in that emotion. I think it's really important. I I think great job. These are really, really great pages. Like you're really onto something here. And I love how dark it is because I am probably the only human alive who I really enjoy dark Vanessa, but not dark enough for me. So in terms of if she does move the Astrid story forward, and that then begins in the present day with her father coming home, if she then alternates back to Tate's chapter, would you suggest that that also begins in the present day and that we keep the things that happen in the past to backstory? Or do you think it's fine to have one POV be in a linear time frame starting in the past and the other one being in a non-linear time frame beginning in the present? What's your thoughts on that? I personally would prefer to see both of them in the present day. That would be preferable. I think it would make it easier for the reader and just more commercial. I understand that this is a literary novel, but you know, the dream is always literary with a commercial appeal. However, if for some reason, like plot wise, we don't know enough about the story, that's not possible. That's okay. Just make sure that Tate's POV is also consistent and linear within her chronology. Otherwise we'll get super confused, like jumping around. A lot of writers can do it, but it's harder on the reader. So you want to be mindful of that. It should be intentional. Yeah. And jumping around when you just have one POV, that's much easier to do. But if you're managing two POVs and you're jumping around within both of them, it can start be quite confusing for the reader. That I think kind of speaks to the crux of the issue with the query as well. It's like, I think we're still trying to find our path in terms of what is the most interesting thing? What is the most interesting moment? And how do these two stories intersect? So so yeah, I, I feel like maybe the author is still doing a little bit of figuring out because again, that disconnect is also reflected in the query. So I think there just might be a little bit of figuring out still to do, but it's all great material. It's just, you know, figuring out where everything goes um, for the sake of, of the storytelling. Wonderful. All right, let's go on to the second query. Dear Carly and Cecilia, I'm seeking representation for my debut 80,000 word commercial fiction novel, Summer of Secrets. Leah couldn't believe her good fortune when she moved with her wealthy husband husband Sam to the desirable Connecticut shoreline town of Guilford. Two years later, she's a 24-year-old widow with two children under six. Leah suspected Sam kept secrets from her, but she's avoided confronting the past, fearing no good would come of it until a threat forces her to do so. Leah's friends have secrets also. Vegan cafe owner Joelle wants to save her marriage by having a baby while her doctor wife only desires sleep. But is she sleeping alone? Financial planner Deborah is successful at work but has amassed huge debts at home. How desperate will her actions become to solve her family's problems before her husband finds out or they lose their house? If only these women would open up and trust each other and their spouses, marriages might be saved, property might not be lost and a child might be saved from an unnecessary death. After early retirement from a stodgy engineering career, my fiction is now about people's lives instead of project schedules. 
My goal was to cross a medical mystery, think Michael Crichton, with a multiple POV story about women and their families, think Leanne Moriarty, to create a page turner with a great deal of wry humor. To hone my new craft, I'm in a writing group and work with multiple beta readers. I've also worked with a developmental editor. A sample of my creative non-fiction writing about a family trip to Italy can be found at the travel journal Wonderlust as an avid crossword puzzle constructor with a half dozen puzzles sold to major newspapers. I enjoy improving my work with the help of an editor. Finally, I'm an avid fan of Miss Murray's podcast on writing and close follower of the PS Literary Agency. Thank you for your consideration, Author X. Cece, would you like to begin with that? I will say that this is a great title. I really enjoyed this title so much. Great job. I would say in the first paragraph, maybe add the comps because you do have them in the letter and then, you know, just move it up to the first paragraph. That just tends to make it easier because it sets the mood. I was confused. There's a line that says, and a child might be saved from an unnecessary death. I wasn't aware that that was at all at stake until I read the line. Like I, we'd gotten a little bit about what the central conflicts are and they all seemed really great. And then we got that line and I was like, oh my gosh, that's um, not confused in a bad way. I, I understand that it might be part of the story, but I guess I was confused because it didn't feel tonally consistent, but in a way that piqued my curiosity. And then I guess in the fifth paragraph, paragraph. The medical mystery angle, again, I wasn't getting that vibe, which I think is one of the reasons why it's important to move that information up to the first paragraph. So that when I do read the paragraphs, the following paragraphs with the central conflicts, I won't feel like the child being saved from an unnecessary death line is coming out of left field. So I think it's an easy fix. I think it's just about moving things around. And I have to say, I love Leanne Moriarty. Love, love, love all of her books. I love wry humor. It's really hard to pull off, but it's it's right up my alley. And yeah, and the final paragraph is just great. You can see that um, the author shared a little bit about her personality, mentioned the podcast. It's always nice to hear. So yeah, so I, I really enjoyed this author X. Good job. Kali, what did you think? Yeah. So one of the things I just wanted to mention for the title, I would prefer that to be all caps. I think it stands out more and can be juxtaposed against the comps, which are lowercase. One of the things that I found very confusing about the query letter was, you know, they talk about the the wealthy husband and that two years later, she's, she's still only 24 with two children under six. Like I'm so confused about what time period we're in because I don't know too many 24 year olds with two children under six. I'm confused about how old the husband is. Like what is the, like if he's wealthy, is it family wealth? Is it, he's much older than her? I had a lot of questions and I think the the character does too. That's the point because it says, you know, Leah suspects Sam kept secrets from her. Like this whole thing is about secrets, but you don't want to confuse us at this stage. Like it need, we need to know what secrets are worth finding out. What secrets does the reader know? Like all of the secret stuff needs to just be a little bit more clear. I found that the paragraph starting um, Leah's friends have secrets also was too factual, you know, too many questions, rhetorical questions again. And then the next, I think CCRD, you know, touched on this, but the whole, you know, marriages might be saved, property might not be lost and the child might be saved from an unnecessary death. So marriages might be saved. Like I thought that Leah's husband's dead and then the friends and secrets. Okay. So like, I'm just presuming that was what we're talking about, but I thought that Leah was the main character. So that was confusing. 
interesting to me. And then the child from an unnecessary death, that was obviously very interesting in terms of a plot point, but thrown at the very end of the body of the query in terms of content. And then in the next part, we talk about the medical mystery. So then I'm like, oh, is it Munchausen's by proxy or something like that? And so that really got my wheels turning. And I just felt like there was so much unexplained stuff happening in this query. All very interesting, but very unexplained because I am so confused with the medical mystery. And obviously we're going to get to the actual content of the pages here in a second. But yeah, I just felt like I just wish I had a better sense of what was going on because it seems interesting. But as an agent, when I'm reading tons of query letters in one sitting, when I have this many questions about a query, it's just like, why would I request this one when I have no idea what's going on? even though it seems interesting, it gives me the sense that maybe the author's manuscript might also be a little bit confused. And just something I want to add there, you know, an unnecessary death. It makes me go, what deaths are necessary? So did you mean there an accidental death or a tragic death or something like that? So maybe look at that word unnecessary, you know, use a a stronger adjective. Cece, what did you think of the opening pages? I just want to say that I I agree with the unnecessary and I read it as avoidable because of how Portuguese works. So I don't know, maybe the author also speaks another Latin language, but, but yeah, but that's a really good point in English. Okay. So I really liked these pages. I, I have notes. So for example, on the second page, by the time I got there, I was thinking to myself, so I love that we're getting a lot of her inner life. I'm a big fan of inner life. It's what makes a book different from a movie. But I will say that it's a lot, right? Like a lot of her inner life is about what other people would say. Parents or neighbors, mom's advice regarding the medicine that she's giving her son, neighbors again through her parents' eyes, like what her father would call the neighbors, and then her husband because she can't get, get him out of her head. Like I absolutely appreciate that this might be a part of her arc, right? Like she's super worried about what people think of her. And, you know, part of her arc is that she will grow to to learn that that doesn't matter quite as much. But the repetition might not be the best way to go about it in the first pages, only because we end up learning more about the other characters, the parents, the neighbors, the husband who's dead, before learning about our protagonist. There's something um, that I call the hidden protagonist, which is a huge problem I see when I get pages. I'm like, I'm invested in the story because I want to know about this person. And you're telling me about everyone else, right? So the only thing I find out about Leah is that she worries way too much about other people's opinions, which again, interesting, good setup for conflict and for, for plot, but I should know more about her in five pages, given the amount of inner life. In terms of the plot, she gets a letter. She can't read it because she gets it while her son is in the car with her and she stuffs it inside her bag. At the very end, we have a line that says she struggled to read the block lettering. Did it say pay up or else? Was that a demand for a million dollars? That didn't quite land for me. Like, is that humor or is she actually concerned about being blackmailed? Since her personality is so unknown to me, is reading as so passive, I have no idea. The query letter mentioned right humor. I don't know if this is this is that, but I it just came out of left field because there wasn't any of the, any humor before. And in five pages, if that's the character's voice, we should have gotten that. So yeah, my big note would be to lean into the letter more. There's too much unnecessary description about her moving around the spaces, whether it's the car or the doctor's office, as well as too much information on the supporting characters. So focus on the protagonist, beware of the hidden protagonist. And the most interesting thing in the story so far to me is the letter. I don't like it when I can tell that the author is purposely withholding information from me to keep me turning the pages. Don't get me wrong. Like knowing when to reveal something is crucial. And in that sense, withholding information is essential to strategic unveiling. But depending on how it's done, it can seem manipulative, right? So, so the trick to doing it right for me is to make sure that 
the fact that she hasn't read the letter yet fits her personality. But in this case, it doesn't, first of all, because I don't know her personality very well, but also because if she's someone who's really concerned about what others think of her, and she is, she's going to read a letter that has her name on it. Like this is someone who's obviously curious about what other people think of her. So she's going to be reading that note. She also has no real impediment. It's not like someone is holding the note from her or she has someone next to her who's who would know what she's reading. It's her child next to her. I know her child is in the doctor, but at one point she does say, he's okay. He's playing around. I probably didn't even need to come. So in that waiting room, she could have read the letter. I, I don't buy it. That's That would be my big plot note, if that makes sense. Right. Carly? Yeah, I was nodding along to all of that. I felt a little bit baited and a little bit manip- manipulated through that action. I agree. I mean, my, I think anybody's curiosity would have gotten them. I, I just, or, you know, instead of just knowing the kid was playing around in the waiting room it's like oh maybe they walked in the door and immediately got swept into the room so like there was no actual amount of time that she could have possibly accessed the letter but yeah and I also felt you know Cece was kind of getting to the whole we're in her head so much that that also felt manipulative to me in the sense that I just wanted to know why are they at the doctor like why just all of this in your head stuff I felt really slowed down the plot for me because if we had less of the in your head stuff, we would have got to this, even if this was the sequence of events, we would have got to this pay up or else by page two instead of page six, which then we could have got onto something else. So it felt very, I don't know if it's purposefully slow. Just on that. So what writers do is manipulate. We absolutely manipulate our audiences the whole time. If we want them to cry, we need to write something in a way that makes them cry. If we want them to be suspicious when it comes to red herrings, we like, look here, look here, while you miss something else. But that's the thing. It has to be done really subtly. It has to be done in an organic way so that the reader doesn't sit there feeling like they are being manipulated. So shall we move on to the third Third query letter. Dear Miss Waters, Rono is a fast-paced coming-of-age story, stands alone as a work of commercial science fiction, and is complete at 77,300 words. It tells the story of Chunk, who is one of only 144 people left living in Rono, a city buried under a mile of ice by the next ice age. While our protagonist works on opening the generator vent that powers his city, the oppression of their leader keeps closing in around him and the other denizens of the city. Chunk and his best friend discover a connection to the outside world and a standoff with their leader reveals that his parents' death was no accident. Their harrowing escape to find what's left of humanity, unexpected discovery of life beyond anything they've ever known, and courageous return to overthrow the murderous ruler of the city frame his journey of hope. This is my first novel and the end effect of applying 15 years of trying to figure out how language works as a high school English teacher. I chose to submit it for your consideration at PS Literary, as you mentioned looking for coming-of-age stories for an adult audience, and Rono certainly fits the bill. I thank you for giving this project your consideration, and if you have any questions or would like to read the full manuscript, please let me know. Best regards, Marek. Uh, Carly, would you like to kick us off with that one? Absolutely. Um, so this one is pitched as a coming of age story, commercial science fiction. Like overall, 
my big question for this is I'm a little bit confused on the science and I know it's so hard because you don't want to bog us down with too many details in a query letter, but I was just confused on like, how are they alive? How are they staying alive? Like just some, I don't know. Again, it could just be me as a reader, as an agent who just doesn't do a lot of science fiction fantasy. Like I'm just not sure of some of the tropes in that sense, but I just had a lot of questions about the actual science. I also found the the second paragraph, the kind of um, summary paragraph, a little bit sterile. It opens with like, while our protagonist, you know, on the back cover copy of a book, you wouldn't see the person called the protagonist. You would see them called by their name. So that felt a little bit sterile to me, which again, might flow with the whole science fiction cold thing. Uh, but I, I just kind of wanted to know a little bit more about um, what the protagonist's name was. And I wasn't actually clear if this generator business was the inciting incident or the actual like plot issue of the whole book. I was just a little bit confused about that. But other than that, it just seems really interesting and unique. And, you know, as somebody that doesn't read a lot of science fiction fantasy, I don't know anything else out there like this. So um, so I, th- I thought it was a very curious topic. Thanks, Carly. Cece, what did you think? Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything Carly said. I am also not well-versed in, in science fiction. I read it occasionally. I thought that, you know, I would just say take Carly's advice and like really grab a few of your favorite science fiction books, read the the copy on the back of the book, and then try to mimic that kind of writing style with the events in your story. I feel like if you make it more salesy and more pitchy, like you, you, you'll grab agents' attention more. It is reading. Sterile really is the best word for it, um, which doesn't really quite make sense because I've read the pages already. So I know there's a lot going on, but the copy here isn't doing it justice. So, so yeah, I think that, you know, the rest of the, it's, it's very professional, very well-written. So the rest of the query letter is fine. I would just really work on the meaty part of it, if that makes sense. Great. Carly, would you like to dive into those opening pages? Mm-hmm. I, I thought this was a pretty good kind of entry into the world. We're talking about like the layers of ice and, and the sun and we got a little bit and I was kind of glad we started to get into the science a little bit in terms of the character has to wear, you know, these parkas and thermal layers and there's you know all of these things to kind of keep them alive so I'm glad they kind of told us that off the beginning without going into too much detail but I I was happy with that amount of science explained to the reader the only thing I would say was that I was kind of expecting something to malfunction because you know it's explained that the the battery life of the device needs to be it was draining it was draining its battery because this person was was too far had been out too long basically so I was waiting for the malfunction basically and when we didn't get a malfunction then I just felt like there wasn't actually any plot happening it was just a character going up you know seeing the sun doing the work they have to do you know keep the world running and then kind of go back down into the darkness so so yeah so I just kind of wanted something to happen but again it's all very interesting and then I got to the point where um, there was some dialogue back and forth between some characters and this is this part got me a little bit confused because it was pitched as a coming-of-age story but everything that I felt that I had been reading at this point was YA so like there's a bit of innuendo back and forth that that ends up being reading quite sexual so then I was like, okay, well, it's not YA, I guess. But I, I was just a little confused about who the actual audience for this book was and how old these characters were. So some of the examples of the of the innuendo was they were talking about going up this channel to see the sun. I guess this person kind of cleans it and takes care of it and things like that. And he says, uh, I've got to get it cleaned up and write up the shaft report. And then it's hopefully it's not too long or hard. She grinned even as the red bloomed in his face. 
Anu, luckily his back was already to her. See you at dinner, question mark. So there's like a little back and forth about this like long and hard kind of comment, which at first I was like, is this supposed to be sexual innuendo? But then there was like the blushing. And then so like, I kind of got it was a flirtation. But as I said, I was just like a little bit confused about who the audience of this was because this felt like a very young flirtation, but it was also sexual. So then I'm like, well, that's not really that YA-ish. So I was just, yeah, I guess I just had a lot of questions about this, but overall I feel like the world is very interesting. Right, Cece? I think world building is really important because it is obviously, right? Like when you're, she is literally creating a new world, which is really hard to do. But I think that in world building, it's best to avoid comparing the fictional world, the world you created to the real world, even the fictional world to the world, to the fictional world that was before, especially when that's all the protagonist has ever known. So if we're inside Chunk's head, there's a sentence that says, they filled the tunnels of the path system that had once connected the massive towers of an earth urban concrete jungle, a metropolis once envied all over the world for its cleanliness, efficiency, and multiculturalism. Why would Chunk be thinking these things? Why is he explaining this to us, right? Like, I think that if it's all he's ever known, we can find out what the world looked like before later. We can probably even do that work ourselves as readers. I don't questions, like fun questions. Like for example, the line that like ants, they filled the tunnels. Like, do they still have ants? Would would ants still exist? I do not know enough about insects to answer that. And I was curious and that's always fun. It's fun to be curious. And and, and again, there's a lot of explaining about the world and I won't read all the sentences, but it, it, it did happen throughout. And, you know, to build on what Carly said, which I agree is I would rather start with something malfunctioning or some other type of conflict. I think the first pages should have, should be grounded in scene with, with character, time, place, and some type of tension. That can be an imbalance, that can be a small conflict, it can be a big conflict, but we need that tension to keep the stakes high, right? And to invest, um, to get us invested in the character. So I think that that's my big note, I think, for the reader. Oh, there was also a lot of listing. Like uh, on page three, Anu was one of the only three positives in his life. In the previous page, we learned about the three things that made, made up his world. Like, I don't think that sounds very natural to like list the number of things, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that we would, that we would do that. I think that it's best to just have the reader experience the emotion that he experiences for Anu and don't, you don't have to really list anything. This is a really creative, high concept idea. It's great. My big note would be to trust your reader and to trust your skill as a writer too. Think of it like this, like you are, as the author, you're piloting a plane. Let the reader be your co-pilot, right? Not a passenger. They're not sitting at the back of the plane, just enjoying the ride and being passive about it. The reader is right next to you doing the writing with you because they are filling in the blanks of what you're not saying with their own experiences. And you don't have to spell everything out. I think you should trust your reader and, and, your, and yourself as a writer. Brilliant. Thanks, Cece. We just want to thank all writers for sharing your work with us. We're so honored and so happy to read your work and to share our thoughts on it. Please follow us on social media. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review. It makes a huge difference. Just a reminder of a few things that we've got coming up. Carly's teaching a session called How to Write a Nonfiction Proposal That Sells. That's on the 29th of April at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Zoom. Go to her Instagram page for the link in the bio to register. I've got a course coming up called Taking Your Writing to the Next Level. So if you have a first draft of a novel that you are now beginning to revise, this is the course for you. I give you a checklist of all the things you should be looking for, 
all the things that will help elevate your writing and help capture an agent's attention. Go to my website, biancamaray.com to register there. And if you're in a different time zone, don't worry, the course will be recorded and you will still have access to me in terms of questions. And I'll be critiquing the first five pages of whatever it is you want to send me. CC also has a webinar coming up on the 20th of May at 8 p.m. Eastern Time called From Memories to Memoir, Turning Your Life's Journey into a Book. If you'd like to sign up for that, please go to her Instagram page and you'll find the link in her bio. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. And now for the guest segment of today's episode. Our guest today is the editor of the M Word, Conversations About Motherhood, as well as a national magazine award-nominated essayist and editor of the Canadian books website, 49thshelf.com. She writes about books and reading at her popular blog, Pickle Me This, the author of two novels, Mitzi Bites and Waiting for a Star to Fall. It's my pleasure to welcome 
Kerry Clare. Kerry, welcome to the show. It's so lovely to be chatting with you today. Thank you for having me. Now, something you and I have spoken about before is how the, one of the most exciting things that can happen for an author is that their book is going to get published and it's going to come out into the world. And there's huge excitement around it. And a lot of authors think that publishers do most of the promotional work surrounding a book coming into the world. And then there's this realization that they need to be doing a ton of promotion in support of their own book coming out into the world. Yeah, it's a big part of the job. Right. And and suddenly they're like, oh my goodness, I have to learn about how to use social media and I have to learn how to use TikTok and I've got to learn this and I've got to learn that. And then of course they start frantically promoting their work online. And this all tends to happen over a short period of time, just before the book comes out or as the book comes out. And so it can be a bit annoying in a way if a writer isn't doing it the right way. It could just feel like these missives into the world, buy my book, buy my book which I don't always think is the most effective way of doing it. Right. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you can be a lovely human being while still promoting your work online. And then even more than that, what I'd like advice from you on is for our listeners out there who are either querying or they're waiting for their novels to be coming out, what they can already be doing now to start making that job easier for themselves down the line. So I think that you definitely have to start ahead of time. This is not something like you know, a f- six weeks before your book comes out, you can't just start up an Instagram account. These things really take time. And so I've come up with a few tips. And the first one I think is to abandon the idea that your online platform sell your book. Hopefully that will be the outcome, but it's sort of a secondary outcome. If that's the only reason you're showing up online to market your book, it's not going to work. I think that you have to be offering something different than that. I think that there is a generosity that's necessary when people are selling things online. If I want someone to buy my book, I have to be giving them something. And I think the first thing you can offer is just your genuine self. Show up and be a human. It's like a party, right? If you're at a party and and someone wants you to get into their, you know, their MLM or they want you to buy their skincare product, like you you probably don't want to hang out with that guy, the person who's being very obvious about about networking. I think think you should just be there to explore the scene. And so the first thing you should do is, is find a platform that you like. I think that if you don't like social media, maybe don't even do it because not doing it all is more effective than it badly. So pick somewhere where your talents can shine. If you you know, are artistic, if you are into photography, a place like Instagram is good. If you are quippy and into current events and, and sort of following everything that's happening in the world in real time, you know, show up on Twitter, um, pick your place and you don't need to do it all. Pick the one that you enjoy. I think that you have to be having a good time and that's why people are going to want to hang out with you on social media. So I think that also it's never too early to start. And I don't think you need to name your profile off you know, you don't have to model yourself as a serious writer. I think you just be a human being and, and share what you see, share what's going on in your life. And then what happens, you see, is that if you've been doing that and, and you have people following you and you follow them and you have real connection, you've been sharing all along sort of just generally what's going on. If what's going on 
begins to be market in your book, well, it kind of makes sense, right? I've always been sharing what, what I'm excited about, what's consuming me these days. And, and if it comes to my book, then the people who are invested in a relationship with me online are going to be excited too. So that that's the best way I know. Just show up and, and be a human being. Now, I want the caveat is I don't know how to sell millions and millions of copies of books. There, there's someone who maybe could give that advice. Um, but I know... <laughs> apparently I, that person now is a book talker who's crying. Uh, apparently that's now the way to do it. So, so I, I know how to sell a few books, but I know how to have a good time when you're doing it. I know how to make the connections real. I, I don't think you have to try too hard. If you're trying too hard, then, then you're doing it wrong. It's also advisable to pick a way of engaging media that enhance work. Because again, like if marketing is, is not good reason enough to be there, people aren't going to be excited about it. So you need to pick another reason to make the effort worth your while. So if it's connecting with other writers, right, building a and being part of a community inspired by other writers, that's great. If you can find, especially for nonfiction writers or people who do research, if you can find a way of engaging adjacent, you know, sharing information from your book that doesn't quite make into the book. I love blogging because, which I think is social media too. The thing about blogging is it's what taught me to write. It taught me to show up and sit down and write every day. And so I'm very fortunate that the the social media that I've been a part of are things that have made me a better writer. And finally, I think you, that nobody cares about your book. Um, <laughs> eventually they will. But, you know, you mentioned those people who are just so obvious. You know, you know, when you follow someone on Twitter and then you get a direct message that's automated and it's like, hey, thanks for the follow. Here's my Amazon link. Like nobody like. Um, and even a person who has a book coming out and, and they just share photos of on Instagram of, of here's my book, here's my book. I don't care. I want something else that will connect me to you. And then I will be excited about your book because, you know, I'm excited about you as a human being. All excellent points. Something that I saw as well, uh, somebody did this well, is the author of The Immortalists, Chloe Benjamin. She is, a, you know, a young woman at, who loves knitting. And for ages, she did all these knitting patterns on her Instagram, connected with so many other young knitters. And I wasn't even aware this was a thing young people were doing because something my grandmother used to do. <laughs> and then she used to force the these sweaters on me that, or jerseys, as we called them in South Africa, these ugly jerseys that I then used to have to wear and they were all so scratchy. And, you know, it was like, I was like, oh God, I only wear these when she's around. And then suddenly all these young people are knitting, but knitting the most gorgeous things. And so what she did as well is that many of her book events became joint book and knitting events. So these young women would come to the event and they'd be knitting during the event. And she would be connecting with them, discussing knitting patterns and That's colors. Fantastic. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. It was, and it was wonderful to see so many of these young women who had interacted with her on other platforms suddenly posting pictures of their knitting and her book, etc. Yeah. And you know what? Like maybe she plotted that out, you know, years in advance, but I don't think she did. I think she's a person who liked knitting and loving knitting that much is a little bit weird. And the internet is a great place to be a little bit weird and to connect with other people who share those interests. And it's wonderful intersections too. You know, there's a woman 
on Instagram who posts about books and pies. I love and that her, account. Her pies are gorgeous. Uh, yes, so that's Pie Lady Books. She's got 55,000 followers on Instagram. So she's and- doing it right. She's doing and 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 she actually promotes other people's books. So she, uh, whatever she's reading, she'll bake a pie that looks like the cover of that book, and people just absolutely love it. What's not to love? It's pie and it's books. That's brilliant. And I think you know there are online spaces are so interesting for the intersections that they can encourage between all kinds of pie and books. And uh, I think you can find your groove and just do your own thing. And maybe you won't have 55,000 followers or whatever, but, you know, a solid group of people who are genuinely connected to you, a few hundred people who care about you. And I mean, that's wonderful, even when you're not trying to sell a book. I think that social media can be a really positive space. And so as long as you show up as yourself Uh, and talking about other people's books is also super important. And and you do a lot of this too. I mean, in your podcast, as a writer, it's a great opportunity to kind of situate yourself in a literary context. I mean, you're also shining a light on, on work that you love. And that's very important. And as authors, we all know that, you know, any sign that someone out there is reading is so welcome and exciting. And so interacting with other people's work, don't make it all about you. Most writers are readers. And so and the reading community online is so you know exciting and and I think there's cool stuff going on and there's opportunities to enhance your reading life too but to contribute to that community also really important and and I again you have to you can't just be there to sell books you have to be there because you love books and if you are then that's a real opportunity to connect with people. yeah and and to connect with other authors because I feel like a network of really supportive authors either in your area, you know, meaning geographically or, you know, in your genre, etc. I find that writers in Canada especially are are extremely supportive of one another. They show up for one another at their book launches. They help promote each other's work. If something's coming up, you know, they post about it online and they share their excitement. And this is something as well that writers need to consider down the line is that even once you sell your book to a publisher, the time is going to come that you have to ask for those dreaded blurbs. (laughs) And if you're anything like me, Kerry, it's like your least favorite favorite part of the job because I'm someone who I struggle to even ask my best friend for a favor. I'm just, I'm someone who hates putting other people out and I'm really bad at asking for help. And so having to reach out, especially to authors that you don't know, but who you admire to say, I know you're super busy. I know you're promoting your own book, but please, can I send you my book? And please, will you read it and say something nice about it so we can put it on the back of the cover? You know, with my debut novel, that was excruciating for me, but by my second novel, it was so much easier because by then I'd built up relationships with other authors. And so it wasn't this reaching out to a stranger saying, please help me, please help me. So I feel like, you know, when you're an emerging writer, if you can reach out and support other writers and build those relationships, I think that really helps down the line as well. What do you it think? It does. And absolutely. You're um, you're also just encouraging literary culture by being a reader in public and, and connecting with other readers and writers. Like you're, you're being part of a world where people care about and you're fostering that world where people care about books and buy books and read books. And I just think that's good for 
all of us promoting other people's work there is a notion of scarcity you know it's it's difficult out there but anyone's success book wise a success for all of us I think there needs to be a spirit of generosity and that we all benefit from that spirit and the great thing too is when you make connections with writers there are lots of disappointments in the literary life but if you have lots of friends who are doing well their successes be our successes too and that's just a wonderful thing to keep going it's you know, there's so much to celebrate when when you're connected with other writers. And I find that um, really helps me keep buoyant and, and keep going. And I find that they're able to keep you buoyant and keep you going, not just in terms of their successes, because it doesn't matter how successful they look online. They've had their fair share of disappointments that you're not seeing on social yeah. media. You know, they were hoping books sold in certain territories that didn't. And, you know, maybe they have two years in which they're extremely disappointed about how a book's done and then they have huge success. So it's also wonderful to know that you're sometimes in the same boat as other people who can go, look at me. I was in the same position as you a year or two ago and look at how things are now, you know, so that's always encouraging. Yeah, there's huge ups and downs. And so company help being a writer is, is really wonderful, but I love literature because the readers matter so much too and so even if it's not all about my book you know I get to be part of this culture and yeah having those connections online makes that even more tangible now getting back to what you were saying about the blogging so you were first and foremost a blogger which I can relate to because back in South Africa my uh, introduction to writing was also a blog that was called Cranky Mac Grouchy I did not blog under my own name and the only reason I'm telling you all this now is because you can't find those posts anymore they Goodness. Yeah, my, my original blog, I started blogging 20 years ago, and I can find it on the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archive, but most other people can't. And I'm really glad about that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. But it is wonderful because you do have a deadline every week because you have followers who get used to perhaps being a day that you post on and you try and post you know, you get into a groove, whether it's once a day, whether it's once a week, you know, it's showing up and sitting down and writing, which I think really gets you into the into the groove of that. And it makes you more dedicated and committed to the craft of that. But in terms of actual blogging and how that might help uh, with building a platform and things like that, what advice do you have, Kerry? Because I know you teach classes on blogging. So for authors out there who aren't familiar with it, who would like to explore it, I would definitely recommend that you take a class with Kerry. But what's what's your advice on that? Well, blogging fascinates me because it's you can make your blog anything you want it blogs for a while had a bad reputation now everyone you know there's a bunch of people who say blogs are dead there's always been people saying that ever since blogs started they're marginal but they always were they were supposed to be and that that's perfectly fine. The great thing about your blog is that you can invent it. Like I was saying about Bookstagram, you don't have to fit into a template. You can invent your own template. It should be something that suits your schedule. And also you can write about book and and do that same work there. I think Instagram is a micro blog. That's definitely how I use. So I think blaze your own trail, you know, don't do what everyone else is doing. Find the thing that fits. And maybe you won't blog very often. Maybe you're really busy with lots of other things, but that's fine. You you can mold your blog. And if people are interested in signing up for a course with you, where would they find information on that? My blogging school website is at myblogschool.ca. 
And I have a course coming up in June that's kind of informal and just kind of a low stakes hangout. And then my intensive course is happening next in September. It's a lot of fun. And also a great way to find community. You know, some of the biggest issues that emerging writers discuss is that they feel kind of alone out there. They're doing this all by themselves. And I find that, you know, when we find our people, when we find our community, it all is so much easier as well. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.